Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. Uh, I think we're at a point now where we kind of just need to start taking a, a, a plunge and changing the payment system more substantially and permanently. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Skilled nursing care is an important Medicare benefit. It's commonly used after a patient has a hospital stay, perhaps for a knee or hip replacement or a stroke or a heart attack. The patient then moves to a skilled nursing facility, often called a SNF, for recovery and rehabilitation. Now, Medicare spends about $30 billion a year on the SNF benefit, making it a natural target of inquiry regarding the necessity of those services. Whether there are opportunities to reduce unnecessary SNF spending is the topic of today's health policy. I'm joined by J. Michael McWilliams, professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. McWilliams has a distinguished career. He received the Dissertation Award back in 2008, the Alice Hirsch New Investigator Award, the Health Services Research Impact Award, all from Academy Health. He even has honors in creative writing, which is a skill I don't hear about all that often when I'm talking to health services researchers. Dr. McWilliams and co-authors published a paper in the May 2021 issue of Health Affairs that took advantage of a feature of Medicare's patient cost-sharing provisions for SNFs. They used it to look for possible waste because in fee-for-service Medicare, cost-sharing applies to skilled nursing facilities after the 20th day of residence. That prompts a spike in discharges on that day for financial, not medical reasons, and that allows us to ask whether patients who are discharged at that time have worse outcomes. Dr. McWilliams and colleagues found the answer is no, suggesting there are opportunities for savings. We'll discuss these findings and other aspects of Dr. McWilliams' work in more detail as we have our discussion today. Dr. McWilliams, welcome to the program. Thanks, Alan. It's it's really a, a pleasure to um, be part of your podacy. So thank you for having me. Well, come along on our podacy and let's start with uh, the paper in the May issue. Um, Explain just for those who aren't familiar, how does post-acute care coverage work in Medicare and why is it such an important area for study? Sure. I I think we would probably need hours, if not days, to cover it in full because it's incredibly complex. Basically, when a patient gets discharged from a hospital, there are several options. The patient can go home. There's home health care that can provide some services or to a facility, and then if to a facility, there are skilled nursing facilities or SNFs, inpatient uh, rehabilitation facilities or or ERFs in the jargon, or long-term acute care hospitals or LTACs, which are reserved for the sort of most chronically severely ill patients with long-term needs. And they all have different benefit structures supporting different levels of care, and they all have different payment systems. And so our study focuses on care in SNFs or skilled nursing facilities, Those are generally the most common uh, type of facility where patients go if they don't go uh, home. And this ends up being a really important component, at least of Medicare spending, because it's where we think there is a lot of the waste. So if if you'll remember, not, I guess now several years ago, there was an Institute of Medicine report that really dug into the geographic variation in Medicare spending that we had been writing about for a long time. And one of the major findings was that actually that variation is driven almost entirely by spending on post-acute care and in particular SNF care. And part of it is that we probably send patients to SNFs too often, we think, rather than home when they could go home. But then another piece of it is that that patients probably spend too much, uh, their length of stay is too long. 
And that makes sense from a, a sort of payment system perspective because the SNF payment system pays on a per diem basis. So SNF care has become a, a real target for risk-bearing providers in what we refer to as alternative payment models, ACO models, bundled payment programs. These providers have incentives to pull waste out of the system, and so post-acute care has become a primary target. The, the sort of analogy that many people use is sort of post-acute has become the ATM for ACOs and, and hospitals bearing risk. And it's not just that the that's where the waste we think may be, or at least a major source of it. It just turns out that the post-acute providers tend to be separately owned uh, from the rest of the delivery system. That's changing to some extent, but in general, that's been true. And in these payment models, it doesn't pay as much. You, you don't generate as much savings from reducing the wasteful care that you provide. The, the incentives are much stronger to reduce the spending on the wasteful care that other providers uh, provide. And whether it's a physician group ACO or a hospital-based ACO or a hospital in an episode-based payment, in general, they don't own the, the SNFs. So the incentive is just that much stronger to go after uh, wasteful post-acute spending. And, and so far, we've those providers have made some progress in pulling out what seems to be waste, but the savings have been quite modest. So far, it doesn't seem like patients are getting harmed, but we're talking on the order of a day or two uh, reduction in length of stay in a sniff, for example. And so we really don't know how far we can dial back. And that's sort of what our study tried to shed some light on. Okay. So you packed a lot in there, but first I have to say you passed the first test of a health policy. You spelled out all your acronyms, LTACs and ERFs. You didn't say what an ATM is, but I think most of us know what that is. So I'm not too worried there. Um, and the idea here is that when you have fee-for-service payment, you get paid by volume and if you're paying per day, the longer you stay, the more you make. But then when you shuffle up the financial incentives so that the ACO uh, can actually capture some of the savings if the, if the spending on SNFs goes down, you've modified the incentives. And now the question is, can we take some days out of those visits or stays, I should say, uh, without harming patients? Because obviously we don't want to shorten the stay so much that the patient doesn't get any better. Measuring quality is complicated. You took advantage in this study of this change in payment at day 20. I love little tricks like this where there's a discontinuity in payment that creates opportunities for analysis. So what is it that happens on day 20? Right, right. And, and this is sort of in the long tradition of health policy research where weird policy makes for good research, right? The, these sort of quirks and cliffs embedded in the rules uh, allow us just sort of a lens into what's happening causally. So what, what happens on day 20, which is the day before this copayment uh, sets in, is that a lot of patients, the ones that get exposed, or, or rather a large share or a significant share of the patients that are exposed to the cost sharing get discharged. There's this big discharge spike. And so we, we find about 10% of patients that we think lack supplemental coverage are discharged on that single day, 10% of patients who are still on a sniff as of day 20. And it's not just that that's a, a pretty high percentage for a single day. It's that we estimate they get uh, sent home over a week early. So the length of stay is shortened by more than seven days on average. And that's just a calculation that goes through day 28. So if we were able to sort of calculate something, the full length of stay reduction would be even longer. This sort of lets us see what dialing back further might do in a way that's informative. 
So you have a stay that is basically truncated for financial reasons, not for clinical reasons. There's nothing that's happened that says, oh, you're fine. It's more the patient saying, I can't, I'm not going to be able to afford this. I need to go home. And uh, presumably you can compare that to people who don't leave on that day. And that's how you look at the quality effects of the shorter stay. Is that how, how does this work? Yes. So I, I would say that that certainly there is an incentive from the patient's perspective financially to go home sooner. Otherwise, they start incurring the, the cost sharing. You know, we, we think that providers care about patients. So that is then in their objective as well to help the patient get home. It also presents a financial incentive to this, the SNF because these patients may not be able to pay the cost sharing. And so this means that the SNF may be paid less for these patients. So there may even be encouragement from that perspective for the patients to go home sooner. Now, this sort of spike, which I think you described well, means that any spike we see means that these discharges are not for clinical reasons. That's been well known. I mean, I think day 20 is just sort of in the industry, well known as a day of discharge for for, uh, this reason, and others have described a discharge spike on this day. And so the advance uh, that we made in our study was to identify the groups that are exposed to this, which is not easy because information on supplemental coverage is not included included in sort of standard Medicare enrollment claims data. We identified two groups. Um, One are a group of Medicare savings program enrollees. Not many people think about the Medicare savings program. It targets a population with incomes just above the thresholds for Medicaid, and they get some state assistance for premiums, but not cost sharing. So they are often referred to as sort of partial duels. And if you're looking for more acronyms, this is one of my favorite acronyms is SLIMBIs, which is Specified Low Income Medicare Beneficiaries. So we're pretty sure that this group, and we verified it with survey data, lack supplemental coverage for the cost sharing. They do get some premium assistance. And then the other group we identified uh, is a group with a very high probability of lacking supplemental coverage. And we did that by using survey data from CAPS, which is the Consumer Assessment of Health Care Providers and Systems. I hope that'll be my last acronym. That provides some information on supplemental coverage. And then we linked those survey data to enrollment files and claims and then created a predictive model so that we could then take the what predicts supplemental coverage to the full population and come up with a prediction. And so we had that additional group sort of at risk of being exposed at high risk and then a control group, which had a very high probability of having supplemental coverage. And then what we can do, as you said, is we started on day 15 of the benefit period and we follow these groups through the threshold day of 28 to the exposed groups experience this big discharge bolus on day 20 and the control group does not in effect. And we can compare the, the outcomes between the groups of the changes in the outcomes before and after. And the story sort of requires some triangulation. I think the, the first thing we looked at um, is where the patients go, because that, that can tell us something. And we found that the 10% exposed that go home or, or, or get discharged, almost all of them go home. So they're, they're very, very small percent that get transferred to a hospital or another facility. And that's very consistent with them not requiring facility-level care, that it, it is safe for them to go home. Going to another facility is an option to avoid cost-sharing if the SNF can arrange it. And then among the, the overwhelming majority that go home, 30% go home without home health care. So 
if the the SNF is planning home health care for patients according to their needs, it's not hard to set up home health. That would suggest that 30% of these patients just really had very minimal residual needs and probably were being discharged too late and this were not premature. Now, another interpretation is that the SNFs are being negligent in setting up home health care. And these are patients that would benefit, you know, it's unsafe for them to go home without home health care. But I, I, that explanation is, is a little hard to believe because it, it would be sort of weird for SNFs to be negligent in that respect, but then perfect agents in determining, you know, when patients uh, can go home otherwise. So I think either way, it suggests that the patients are staying too long just based on where they go alone. But then we can also look at outcomes to see if adverse events happen for differentially for the patients that go home sooner. And we looked at death rates by day 28, all-cause hospitalization and hospitalization for fall-related injuries. And the, the overall gist of those results is we find no clear evidence of catastrophic consequences that would lead to uh, any of those outcomes by uh, day 28 or within nine days of the discharge spike. Now, we always wish as researchers we had all the data in the universe so that we can estimate things with very precise confidence intervals. So I said, no, it, we, we didn't find statistically significant results, but it's important, I think, to look at the point estimates and sort of think about them as if they were real effects. But to unpack that a bit, the, the point estimate for mortality is actually a reduction, a one percentage point. So it, it we, we sort of rescale things to consider what happens to the patients considering a full seven-day reduction in length of stay? So a dramatic reduction, which is basically the average uh, of what happens. What happens by day 28? So cumulative rates of these outcomes by, by nine days. And we find a one percentage point reduction in mortality. Again, not statistically significant, but that's the point estimate. So if anything, it seems like there's a benefit from that perspective. A two percentage point increase in all-cause uh, hospitalization, and then up just a 0.2 percentage point increase in fall-related hospitalizations. This paper is really not about cost sharing. We're just using cost sharing to see what happens to people when they get sent home over a week early due to this sort of really blunt policy lever. It's not the way we would probably develop policy. And it's also probably not what we would see with ACOs and hospitals bearing risks or SNFs bearing risk and trying to get patients out the door sooner. We would think that uh, without the cost sharing, which we know from a large literature reduces you know, not just use of wasteful care, but also beneficial care, that maybe the, the providers would be more selective in reducing length of stay. So I think for all those reasons, we feel like the, the results compellingly show us that the major, ad, you know, not many adverse, major adverse events going on from this sort of dramatic uh, length of stay reduction. And so that surely suggests, if not some waste, then at least some opportunities uh, to try to meet any residual patient needs better at home. Well, we're going to talk a little more about the policy implications of this and some of the other work you've done, but uh, let's uh, take a quick break before we do that. Hey, everyone. Hope you're enjoying the show. We have exciting news for listeners of A Health Policy. Next month's issue of Health Affairs is dedicated exclusively to border health and immigration. Our July issue features new research on migration and health policy at the U.S.-Mexico border and beyond. You can pre-order your copy now at healthaffairs.org or click the link in the show notes.
And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Michael McWilliams about quality of care for people discharged from a skilled nursing facility. Before the break, you basically gave us the bottom line finding from the study you published with us in May of 2021 that the approximately one week reduction in length of stay overall doesn't show signs of having any negative uh, quality implications or outcome implications for patients. So if we just loosely say it looks like there's room to scale back care or have the care needs met, as you were saying before the break, in potentially a different way. You know, your scholarly work is quite broad, and you study a lot about healthcare organization financing. In the introduction, you were discussing ACOs and different payment models. Can you put these together and sort of say, how does a changing payment model uh, uh, affect or what effect might your research have on thinking about the payment models to try to squeeze some of this waste out of the system? So with respect to the post-acute care specifically, I think there's sort of first order and second order implications. And I can talk more broadly about payment reform and sort of where it's heading. In terms of post-acute care, I think that this generally is quite supportive of the strategies that providers in these alternative payment models have been taking. There seems to be more ways to pull out in post-acute. There is a new SNF payment system, the patient-driven payment model, that still pays on a per diem basis. So uh, the, the importance of these models that bundle post-acute care still seems to be quite important. So I think, you know, from that perspective, the first order policy implications just full steam ahead. This seems like this is something where we can pull waste out of the system and either save money or redirect those resources in a way that better serves patients. This sort of second order implications are a little bit more nuanced. If this is not true waste that we've identified, you know, there may be other reasons to keep patients in a facility, whether to get them more therapy that they can't get at home or because they can't do their activities of daily living quite yet. There, our point is that as long as a patient doesn't need the 24-hour supervision that's offered in a facility to prevent these, these sort of more major adverse events, then there's a chance to do more in the home setting to meet the patient's needs. And there's a lot of interest there. So I think another implication is that these findings and where payment reform is going would um, support the development of more innovative uh, home models and also some more innovative models in these facilities. You know, I, I think about uh, patients that I've taken care of and family members, and often what happens in these post-acute facilities is that patients can just sort of languish because they get physical therapy for a piece of the day but they're kind of not ready to get up and going. So then they're restricted to their bed because they're a fall risk. And they just, for the rest of the day, they're getting deconditioned and they just can never really catch up or it just takes a lot longer. So you can imagine these incentives um, motivating uh, the provision of a lot more intensive therapy up front to get home uh, patients home sooner. In economics, we, we talk about sort of general equilibrium effects. And so there's sort of clearly the, the partial equilibrium effect here is that we think we can pull waste out of post-acute our healthcare system is so fragmented between you know, the, the payment systems that then there are possible spillover effects, right? And so I think one concern is if we, even if it's waste, um, if we pull it out of post-acute, then these facilities can't cross-subsidize their long-term residents. And so there may be a quality problem uh, there that results. And I, I think in general, uh, from a policy design perspective, we just better be sure that we're addressing long-term care financing head-on um, as we do this. And, and you know, clearly what the pandemic exposed. Um, there's a clear need for that. I think the president's jobs plan, uh, there's a lot of money um, 
uh, that's proposed for home-based care. So I think that conversation will happen and also more support for informal caregiving. I mean, the burden on informal caregivers is just incredibly re regressive. But I think it's important to separate the, out the, the policy objectives in, in these debates. Then I think, um, and, and also I, I guess I would just say one more thing, and that is because I, I often worry that healthcare professionals and being one myself uh, can get the wrong idea from these some of these studies that just sort of uh, uh, identify waste in the system because they're part of um, making decisions that generate that, that waste. And I, I think it's important to acknowledge that the objectives and the incentives at an organization level, uh, sort of the business of healthcare, don't always align with the uh, what's going on at the professional level or the, the objectives of professionals. So, so in these SNFs, for example, it may be that the professionals are doing their utmost to try to do what's in the best interest of patients. But because of the financial incentives at the organizational level, things are just set up in a way that makes that harder. Um, so, it, you know, as a PCP, for example, something that really frustrates me is when I see a patient with abdominal pain, I'm worried about um, inflammation of the gallbladder, uh, acute cholecystitis. I can't get an ultrasound, a, a cheap ultrasound, just to sort of exonerate that you exclude that possibility and get the patient home. Um, but I can get a CT scan right away and I can send them down to the ED very easily. Those are two very easy pathways that are just much more, more costly. So professionals in these facilities may be really you know, doing their best to do their job. It's just that they're sort of constrained. More broadly, um, the post-acute story in some ways is one of success. I mean, this is this is an area where payment reform has made some strides of late. And I think where there is uh, more talk about delivery system innovation. So I, I see this as, as an optimistic, it's sort of exciting story uh, in the grand scheme. As you said, I, I study sort of healthcare organization financing more broadly. I would say there that in general, the progress has been pretty slow. I don't know where on the on the on on the health policy it would be. I guess the the, the most uh, similar experience that Odysseus had would probably be the lotus eaters, right? It just seems like we're sort of stuck on this island, and progress has been has been slow. And part of that, I think, is conversations and movement. I think in developing new payment models. Uh, I think we're at a point now where we kind of just need to start taking a, a, a plunge and changing the payment system more substantially and permanently, as was done years ago with the DRG system, for example. Okay, so so now you've tempted me. So uh, I, I can't help but bring up the siren song, since you've refer referenced the Lotus Eaters, uh, the siren song of payment reform and um, whether we're just going to sit and be seduced by the beautiful voices of payment reform or whether there's something there. I really appreciate you bringing up this notion that the individual clinician is, op is, is functioning in an environment of financial incentives. That doesn't mean the individual clinician isn't doing their best. Um, and you said you think we're not as far along in other parts of the system as maybe we are in post-acute. So I'm always interested when I speak to clinicians, partly because I'm not one myself, that in this question of whether we can really use, or I should say the degree to which we can or should use financial incentives to change how healthcare delivery occurs. And um, you suggested maybe we're, we're not 
fast enough or strong enough, but I would sort of pose the other question, which is, is it really the right tool? So uh, I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but you know, as, as, as a practicing clinician, but also a researcher, when you see this emphasis on financial incentives and financial models, does it make you excited that we need to put more our, our feet more firmly on the gas. I, I guess uh, Odysseus did not have a gas pedal, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> Blowing in the sails. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Should we trim the sails and go uh, uh, headlong into the winds of, of, of new payment models? Or as a clinician, does all this talk about financial incentives make you give you a little bit of indigestion and make you worry that we're uh, trying to solve one type of problem with maybe the wrong tools and I'll let you take that question wherever you want it to go. Yes. So I, I'm, I'm really glad that you asked this. I think this is a source of a lot of confusion. There's a distinction to be made, which I think you're alluding to, um, which often isn't. And that is really derailed. I think the conversation, I, I sort of think about this as one objective to reduce waste. And there, I think absolutely we need to move forward with these, these payment models, I have not subscribed to ACOs, for example, being sort of magical unicorns. Um, I think there was a lot of high expectations. I did not share those, but I also am quite optimistic about these payment models. In part because we, we know there have been there has been some behavioral response, there has been some savings, there have been spending reductions. They're, they're quite small, but I think that has to be interpreted in the context of the incentives being just incredibly weak in the way that these models have been designed. And, and actually, when you add up all the ways in which the incentives are weak, it is astonishing that we saw any movement whatsoever. So I, I have a lot of optimism that as we strengthen the incentives in these models, we can make more progress. That is separate from, from the other piece, which is quality. And so I think one thing that we'll need going forward is much clearer dialogue about what we are talking about. In health policy, we, we tend to take an idea and then we sort of ascribe it a name or an acronym. Uh, and then that acronym sort of becomes synonymous with sort of the spin or, or the way that people think it's going to work or the way it was implemented rather than with the idea. So in the case of ACOs, the, the conversation from the outset was focused on things like care coordination and prevention as sort of vehicles for savings and basically that better quality. Now, I know, you know, some conceive of waste as part of quality, but setting that aside, that better quality would reduce spending and led to all kinds of slogans like paying for value instead of volume and paying for health instead of healthcare. Instead of talking about what an ACO actually really is operationally, which is a risk contract, and that that idea has been around forever. So then what comes out of uh, the evidence or the conversation are things like ACOs don't work. Uh, let's think of something else rather than appreciating that well, ACOs is risk contracts, so let's think about how we can improve the risk contract. Because that's basically the, the only vehicle uh, to delegate risk and uh, align financing and delivery in such a way to reduce uh, waste. Uh, so, so clearly, I think that is necessary for the waste reduction aim. So then the question, because these models also compose basically a pay-for-performance component, the question whether we can or should improve quality through the payment system. And here, I just think about this completely differently from the other goal. In a risk contract, you can Medicare can contract with a provider quite easily to minimize the cost of care by setting, by giving providers or plans a, a lump sum of 
prospective payment without having to measure costs. The problem with quality is in order to for quality to be contractable, it has to be measurable. And so then and you have to basically replace a fee for service schedule with a sort of fee for quality schedule. And that runs into all kinds of problems. First of all, all kinds of challenges in measuring quality, which is just very hard to do. But then all kinds of additional problems that arise when you attach financial incentives to performance on measured quality. There, there's gaming and teaching to the test, you know, all these wasteful behaviors. There's the multitasking problem where uh, we can divert resources away from hard to measure but important aspects of quality to the things that we uh, can measure. Um, there are There's the concern about exacerbating disparities because of inadequate risk adjustment. And then the bottom line, though, is we can really only put so much money on the table for quality. And if we spread that over a ton of measures, then there's really no incentive to improve on anyone. If we devote it to just a few measures, then, okay, th that might work. Uh, but then we're only moving you know, a very narrow slice of quality forward. So some would argue that we just need sort of better measures, stronger incentives. I generally find those arguments um, somewhat aspirational because I, I think that, that the problems are just too intractable. Um, so I, I tend not to see the payment system as the primary mechanism for improving quality in the healthcare system. Well, uh, that's a comprehensive response to a complicated topic. And um, it's actually encouraging for me to hear you sort of temper your enthusiasm, uh, despite your earlier comments about how there's potential here. And uh, so I'm going to take this as a, as a, well, I'm, I'm not going to try to summarize it because it's too complex. I think this, the answer itself was the, was the, the full answer. Um, I think we've demonstrated that uh, healthcare is a journey, and uh, at this point, I think today's health policy probably needs to wrap up. Uh, Dr. McWilliams, thank you so much for the paper you published with us, the many you have and more that you will, uh, for describing the one in the May issue and for uh, showing us that the implications of one study really go far beyond that uh, when you can put them in the context of broader knowledge and broader learning. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on today's A Health Policy. Thank you, Alan. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about A Health Policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Podacy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.